Can we do this right? Hi, I'm Timothy Fitz. I'm Jeff Lindsay. And this is Systems Live. What are frogs? What are frogs? Okay. I, we, we did got, it. We're we got in. It? We're in. Okay. We're, we're doing the podcast now. That's news for us. So uh, we wanted to talk about emergence. We actually already talked about emergence. We've talked about emergence a lot in, 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 in our lifetime. In our lifetime. Yeah, me and you. Um, but it's something that's coming up a lot more for me personally. Uh, Why? Are you doing it for game stuff? Or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, I'm seeing it more and more in games, and two, I'm like sort of uh, specializing in procedural generation, I guess, in in my career in generalist form, like not just games, but other aspects as well. Um. And so I think it's I think it's something that like people can see and feel and and sort of innately understand because it's so common, but it's it's not really well understood, and there's no science around it. Well, arguably that's what system sciences are. It's because emergence is at the heart of systems, and that's what this show is actually about. If there's a thing the show is about. Systems. I mean, it's great because systems applies to everything, which is part of why it's such a good... We can kind of use it for anything, talk about anything. But in theory, we're talking about everything through the lens of systems. But it's more indirectly through our perspectives, which just happen to be very systems-oriented. Yeah. Yeah, and then emergence, like, it, it just pops up everywhere. It's just so... Literally, what is life? What are frogs? Um... Oh, speaking of what is life, uh, I have an announcement for the podcast. Oh, cool. I know what this is. Yeah, you do. I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. I'm pregnant with my first child. I mean, I guess technically Amanda is pregnant, but yeah, Congrats. We've, uh, we're emerging a new life form, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Making life. Making life. Making a new life. Self-organizing systems. It's very, it's very weird. Like I was trying to find the answer to when does consciousness start or when do your neurons start firing, and we like don't really have a good handle on that. No. What so. are frogs? All right, that's it. That's your All quota. Right. You got no more frog questions. But what are frogs? What's frogs fractions, and why are you still asking? What are frogs? This might be the podcast where I finally actually reach over and slap you. That would be a good podcast. A good milestone. I like, yeah. I, I think I've written notes down, like, oh, I really want to slap Jeff, but that's probably inappropriate. You were tr- writing it down just to, so you wouldn't actually do it. I, I drew a full page picture of me slapping you in the face once out of rage. Um, do you, before we talk about emergence, since we're already not even talking about it, um, do you want to talk about other things that are going on besides you getting pregnant? Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of like enter the topic before we jumped off and be like, what's going on? I got my Oculus Rift. Yeah. I got DK2. Yeah. Been in the queue for a while. It is really cool. It makes me want LASIK. That's my first observation. Because uh, it, it works way better with contacts and glasses. Sure. It's the still pretty good. Fit in it's it. still pretty good with glasses, yeah. But it doesn't look right or what? Uh, it looks better with contacts. It fits better. It feels better. Um, but that's like one of the big open questions is whether or not the, the first few versions of Oculus... Um, oh, so, so for those who don't know Oculus Rift, I don't know how you don't know, but it's it's a big headset you shove on your, your head. It gives you 
uh, really good VR, really impressively good. So the, the big change with the DK2 versus the DK1 is the DK2 has kind of a Kinect-like sensor that measures LEDs on the headset and gives you 3D positional, absolute positioning of your head. And so that just means, your head. Yeah, just your head. You can get other sensors for other parts of your body, but then like that means is you'll be looking forward and you'll see like a, a wall or a hallway and you can like shift your head to the left look, and look, look down the, the hallway. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it just feels so natural. And so the, everyone's first experience is you like, uh, so I was playing this game, um, Exile and you, is that what you were playing when I took that video? Probably. Or maybe one of the demos, but you're, you're in a cockpit and you just look around and you're like, oh, it's a cockpit. And then you just stick your head in naturally. Like you, you just like yeah, just, look up close at stuff. It's so, it's so natural. And it's, it's this big jump forward from any other VR experience I've ever had, including DK1, including the first Oculus Rift. Um, and it's 350 bucks for, for the dev kit. Like, and this is only going to get cheaper and better. What's the deal with the, um, what is it, Samsung or like? Oh yeah. So then the Galaxy Note 4, not the Note Edge, but the Note 4. Um, which is their, their flagship phablet giant thing. Um, so when it launches in fall, I don't know if there's a release date yet. Um, Oculus will, uh, with Samsung, I believe Samsung's actually doing the retail portion of it. Um, they're going to launch this container. Basically it looks like an Oculus Rift, but it doesn't have a display and the phone slides into it. Um, and it's closer to sort of the DK1 in terms of sensors. You know, that's exactly like uh, Kate Compton's device. It is. It's very similar, except that um, Kate's device... It was based on reflection. It was overlay. But Kate's device is AR and reflection, and um, it used the sensors of the phone to do it, and it was like 20 or 30 bucks. Yeah. It, was, it was real cheap. Um, super and the problem, cool for Bang for Buck, though. Yeah, Bang for Buck was super cool, especially, you know, that was five years ago, four years ago. Yeah. Um, and she was probably working on it even long before then. But the problem with that is the the um, head tracking isn't that good, and the lag is not that good, the latency isn't yeah. that good, which makes it just not that immersive. Um, whereas, like, the... The Galaxy Note 4, their, their screen is actually like a low persistence display and it's super, super high resolution. Um, and there's an eye splitter so, and you get the, the Oculus um, optics that give you the like giant field of view. Giant field of view also is a really, really big deal with Oculus. Like even if you just stuck your face into it and didn't move it around, it would be a more compelling experience than a screen. So... Um... I actually just shared the Carmack talk that we watched on vacation. That's kind of what got me excited about it again because I was kind of, oh, yeah, Oculus, and I've heard about some cool stuff. But just hearing, like, you know, because John's always been, Carmack's always been into this stuff. And if you read, like, Masters of Doom, like, they've always... I like how he kind of talks about the, uh, you know, kind of first-generation VR craze, you know, that was going on. People are talking about VR in the Wolfenstein days, thinking that's VR, you know? Yeah, I played... I had this, like pretty concrete memory of being really young and playing the Wolfenstein Doom era game. It was like five or ten dollars, which at the time was a ton of money. I think it was on vacation. Um, and the experience was really bad. Like even at that point in my life when like most games were really fun and cool, I was like, okay, that was not worth it. Mm-hmm. That was not that was not the experience that, that uh, I was promised. 
Well, you know, like everything that actually was VR was like even worse, like the Virtual Boy and like stuff like that. I actually like the Virtual Boy. Mm -hmm. It had a lot of limitations and people got a lot of neck pain, but maybe being, you know, nine or something or whatever age it was when it came out was... Uh, solved most of the neck pain issues and the 3d worked like it for its, all its limitations it worked so i can't see 3d so like i was i was young my dad is sometimes friends with like eccentric genius inventors sometimes occasionally um and so i met this one guy who's like demoing like the most realist vr class and they were actually really light um too simple and there was a demo, and like I just couldn't see it. No, no 3D stuff. Like I don't see 3D movies or anything like that. I'm just legally blind in my right eye. So, oh well. But everything else, like VR, is so much more than just that 3D ness of it. Um, that's just one element of like the immersion, right? There's that's that's the really really interesting part to me. Like the Oculus is probably the the biggest jump forward we're gonna see. But I'm less interested in that than like the whole generational upgrade of all of these devices. Now they sell two, $300 prosumer commercial uh, tracking sensors that you mount on your hands or you hold these joysticks and then you mount these other things to the rest of your body. And then you just get like full realistic sense of your whole body. And so their demo is like you throw an Oculus on and you grab these two things and then you're in a lightsaber battle and it's just like one-to-one with your, your hand motions and fairly low latency. The types of experiences you can do with that, totally game-changing. And it's not just entertainment or media. Um, it'll you know it'll be surgeons. It'll be remote work. Um, people are talking about virtual desktops. That one's really interesting to me as well. You put that the was Oculus the one that on. was really, really funny to me because it's sort of like you're using it for the most boring thing. You're emulating like your office, right? Yeah. And, but it's a better experience. And that's when it... That's, I think, one of the moments where it kind of clicks with me. It's like... You can actually get a a better monitor, like just a monitor setup in virtual reality than, you know, cheaper than you could setting up a real monitor setup. And it takes less room and all that stuff because you can actually set up a desk with monitors that have like, what, equivalent resolution of like the real thing? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the experience is not flawless yet. Yeah, but Um, I mean, you're getting there to the point where you can actually set up like a really cool... Uh, you know, kind of multi-monitor setup virtually if you wanted to. Totally, totally. And another thing that people... Like, we have all of these preconceptions from sci-fi of what VR is going to be, and a big part of the the Oculus Rift dev scene, which is lots of, like, indie and homebrew and, and hobbyist because there's, like, commercialization is really unknown right now. Um, we're finding out that most of our preconceptions are wrong. Like, what you actually want to do in these things... Everyone wants the, like, ultimate life simulator, but at that point, like, to go out and live life. What mm-hmm. we really want are these things that you couldn't have before. Um, and there's a bunch of, like, non-obvious limitations. So one of the big limitations of the Oculus is that if you have visual motion, there's no way to actually move your body to correspond to that visual so motion. You feel it. So you feel sick. You'll yeah. feel nauseous. And, and it's an open question how much of this will go away as people use Oculuses more because I had this exact experience playing 3D games for the first time. Yeah, everybody kind of grew up with it and got over it or whatever. Yeah, um, in the same way that I'm guessing that like when the car came out and people first started going 40 miles yeah. an hour, they were you know puking and thinking it was super unsafe and now people do 75 and don't blink all the time. Unless they're reading. <laughs> while um, driving. Reading while driving. Not that we know anyone who does that. Um, 
And so like the, that's like a fundamental limitation right now where you can't do a lot of the sort of simulations that people would just expect would work naturally. And so what we're finding are like these uh, diorama games where it's like, imagine Mario 64 um, and you're the third person omniscient view. Uh, and there's a camera tracking algorithm. So there's some base motion that sort of roughly follows your avatar, but you can sort of lean into the diorama and lean back out and get all of this like physical sense of the space without actually being in the thing that's moving too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that experience is amazing. I didn't it, think of that. That's kind of a cool... Yeah, like, I It's no like idea. you're playing with a little model world. It feels like you're playing with an actual model. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that sort of metaphor works way better right now for the DK2 than, than for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for God games, I'm sure. How oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I don't know that, I don't know that like, first-person shooters will actually be that compelling right away. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, which is sort of the bread and butter of the games and entertainment industry right now. Right. So... It's, it's early days. It's really interesting. Timeline is um, preview beta device of the end consumer version next year and then consumer version early 2016, I think. Are you... So what are you doing with it? Well, so my original idea was to do a uh, vocal multiplayer, um, which is... Uh, vocal multiplayer is this genre where, like... I keep forgetting, and I'm like, are you saying... <laughs> yeah. Maybe I need a better term for it. But it's this genre where like a significant part of the game is talking, communicating out loud that's sort of unmediated and unregulated by the, the digital experience. Um, where Space Team and Artemis are sort of the two really common examples of that right now. Um, Space Team is mobile, Artemis is this crazy desktop Star Trek bridge simulator. Um, so I'm, I've, I'm working on this vocal multiplayer game. Right now it's, it's just laptops. Um, I definitely will do an Oculus Rift version of it. The problem I ran into is right now to do an Oculus Rift 4-player local multiplayer game is four expensive gaming rigs plus four $350 Oculus Rifts plus four of whatever input scheme you want. So if I want fancy joystick, or not joystick, but the the 3D positional sensor sticks, which are like $150 for the cheap ones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everything's multiplied by four. So it's like 10 grand roughly to get the like base setup that I want. Because um, like... When you ask the Oculus people what their like minimum system requirements are for an Oculus Rift, they're looking at shipping in two years. The graphics cards they're saying are like four hundred dollars yeah. a piece. It's it's really expensive hardware, and you know when you buy a graphics card that expensive, you kind of have to build up the rest of the system uh, in tune with it, or you won't get the performance out of it. So, I mean, the, the, we've been ta- we this is kind of a game uh, games. Uh, well, the thing about games. Somebody pointed this out a long time ago. It's like it's kind of funny how the game industry is sort of the ones responsible for VR and VR is potentially the you know it has so many more implications than just games. And um, I think uh, I I've always thought about games as their significance more than just games or entertainment, and you probably do too. But I think one of the interesting things that's actually relevant to our topic is that when you're um, the con- the topic of emergence actually comes up way more often in game design than m- most other fields that I can think of, um, other than sort of like obscure, you know, like uh, mathematical or like what is life kind of stuff. Um, a yeah, new kind I don't, of science I don't, and yeah, I don't I don't meet many programmers talking about emergence, but when I think about, for instance, language design. 
um, you know, when I think about Go or Erlang, I think, mm-hmm. man, their, their grammars are so small. The, the explaining the language is so simple, mm-hmm. but yet from these simple rules, all this really interesting complexity comes out. I mean, the, the Erlang grammar, the, grammar is literally one page per note. It's mm-hmm. that simple. Syntax is so simple, and yet from that you can build really, really interesting things. Scheme, Lisp, kind of same same deal. Um, Go, the language actually is kind of funny because Go, the board game, is also a common uh, example of, of emergence. Um, it's sort Probably of, one of the best. It's, it's sort of like the canonical example of, of emergent gameplay because it has very simple rules very you know it looks it looks simpler than chess yet it has a much richer possibility space it's it's still not solved it's still not not solved even but um the best ai still can't beat the best humans so it's like it might be the last the last thing that humans beat computers at yeah so it's it's a it's really interesting in games you talk about things like possibility space like you know because games are interactive and they kind of unfold in front of you um, a lot of times, it's uh, you know unfolding in in interesting and unknown ways, which is where a lot of interesting gameplay comes from. I guess we can talk about that with like Spelunky and stuff like that. But um, emergence is sort of a, a really powerful tool when designing games because that's kind of part of what makes a game experience really great. Um, but uh, in general, like that, that's one of the reasons why I like games because it helps. It, it's like it's one of the few places where people really study and talk about emergence. Uh, whereas emergence actually is uh, relevant all over the place. It's kind of the key to, to systems also, thinking. Yeah, I mean, games have this nice thing where, like, if someone makes an interesting system in a game, it'll get cloned. And and like you know, there's, there's good cloning and bad cloning, whatever. I'm talking about that. But over the course of the next twenty years, if you make anything interesting there will be a thousand takes on it. Um, and, and I don't see that in many other fields. You know, when, when you build a system, when you build, uh, you know, a, a distributed, scalable database system, there's three or four of them. There's, there's not the sort of rapid iteration on it because games are so cheap to make. Like, fundamentally, you can, you can bang out a procedurally generated video game in two weeks. You know, really simple prototype. And totally understand some basic concept and then do another and then do another and then do another um whereas most of the most of the sort of rule sets that we play in professionally are much slower to iterate on and much slower to learn about why is that i mean i think games have to be simple like if i build a game you have to be able to learn the basics of it in minutes Can you i guess it's, it's a pretty self-contained world it's like the, the player is usually the only sort of um outside element whereas you know when you're de- designing distributed systems you're talking about um you know, at least in terms of like operations of what kind of world we live in it's sort of you have uh all kinds of realities to think about you know the, well, the network this... stack and just so much stuff yeah and it's like solve a problem and then once you've solved that problem solve the next problem there's very little of solve that problem and then okay now solve it better okay now solve it better okay now solve it better which is in games that's that's really really common well i think that that's that, that it's sort of uh i mean a game is only is a game only exists uh in the form in what you program like it's only capable of doing of what you program so it is like that self-containedness actually makes it very simple it's not um you know it's not interacting with the real world and and like routing packets through routers across the world that you have no control over and stuff like that my game's doing that hmm? <laughs> my game's doing that. Yeah. um yeah yeah i don't i don't fully understand why game design seems to get systems better than most 
other fields. Um, well, I, I mean, maybe not better, but but in this more abstract sense. I mean, to me, what what games are when you t- when you uh, if you've read uh, Raf Koster's book, what is it? Well, Raf Raf almost defines games a as theory systems. of fun. He's very systems oriented in his definition of games, which is I'd say fairly controversial. Um, I mean, there's a lot. To, I mean, like if you were to well, taking his perspective of games as systems, and his argument uh, is in in the book at least that all games teach, um, which I think is true regardless of whether that's valuable to you um, the point is that all games are a system like whether or not you've designed it consciously as you know a system that works in a particular way um, a game has certain rules and has certain maybe goals or whatever dynamics and to kind of progress or do any anything in the game is sort of understanding how those rules work right and having mastery over those rules and in the inputs so getting good at a, a simple game of like pac-man is just understanding like you know the dynamics of you know how how the ghosts interact it's sort of like intuitively understanding the ai behind it or understanding the rules of the world or the game and if you get better you're better understanding those rules so Playing and getting good at a game is learning the system of the game. Um, and so that's kind of the key thing is that games are inherently about systems, whether or not it's also about, you know, an aesthetics or emotion, all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would put the caveat on it that systems, like there are games that are about their systems and then there are games that are very much not about their systems. Like what? Um uh, like narrative games, yeah. Um, like Gone Home, yeah. There's no real system in Gone Home. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the system is walk around and hit the interact button. Yeah. Um, it teaches you something, maybe in the sense that you would learn something from reading a book, but mm-hmm. it's much closer to reading a book than it is necessarily playing a game in terms of a systems approach. However, this like self-identification, I am in this world, I am moving from point to point, allows it to be a better narrative experience. So I would say like there are Raph Koster theory of fun games, and then there are non-theory of fun games. There are games that have different theses and work in different ways. Yeah, and they're kind of this, and that's kind of the story and games argument as well. Um, yeah. Which I, I don't, you know, I don't really think it's an argument. I mean, you have, it's, they're different, you know, it's a complex spectrum of, you know, what you're trying to get out of the medium, but and some people would argue that if you're not making game that's about systems or interactivity, you're not really taking advantage of the core, one of the core um, unique, you know, value propositions of the medium, which is interactivity. Um, and interact- interactivity is basically saying interacting with a system. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I think we're in the early days. I think we really and truly don't understand what we can do and what we can build and what we can make people feel with games. Um, and and that's really interesting to me, and that that sort of like has been an explosion recently of of indies being able to monetize, and therefore a lot larger long tail of gaming, and therefore way more variety in in just the types of games we're making, and and how things that people don't even call games anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Proteus is a really interesting example. It's a procedurally generated world. You walk around in it, and you explore. But there's no interactivity, very, very little interactivity, and there's no real system you affect, and there's minimal cause and effect, um, and there's minimal plot. You know, there's there's no story. There's just it's just sort of an experience, um, and it was really fun. It was really interesting, and I don't know how to classify that, and I kind of don't care. Like mm-hmm. it exists and it's interesting, and hopefully more things will be like it. Yeah, and that got remixed. That's another really interesting thing to me. Like. 
uh, music embraced remixing and movies and television hate remixing. And games are in this weird area where like mods are sort of remixes, but they exist within a commercial environment that allows the game to profit from them. Um, but Proteus actually had a remix of it get published separately that you can buy separately. Wow. Purgatorious or something like that. I forget the exact name of it, but they took this like sort of positive, peaceful exploration and turned it into this like really melancholy, uh, just a totally different emotional feel by remixing all the art and I don't know, maybe modifying the code as well. Um, I really want to see more of that. So, I mean, there's like this, uh, if you're familiar with the MDA framework for like game design, you've heard of that? It's kind of an older model of talking about a game in terms of mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics. Mm. I, I mean, I've heard split that, splits like that, but not that specific uh, phrasing. Yeah, it's a, it's a specific framework, just kind of a way to think about you have mechanics, you have certain rules, and those are the, usually the things that you explicitly will you know hard code or program into a game. You have the dynamics, which is basically saying what the uh, where emergence happens. It's those when those mechanics are running and actually running the simulation. You have things that are happening at runtime, which is dynamics over time. And then uh, you have aesthetics, which is going to be uh, everything else that you kind of layer on top of that that gives any sort of emotional experience to it. And that in itself is another form of emergence when you combine the aesthetics, you know, the art style, the you know, any kind of emotional element, you know, how that interacts with the rest of the dynamics and the mechanics um, is itself a form of emergence. But usually when you talk about emergence in game design, you're talking about the dynamics or the mechanics to, that lead to emergent dynamics. Um, but I think it's important to realize that emergence is also that interesting magic feeling when you actually combine, um, you know, it, it's just like a, the in movies, you know, how much the music score uh, will actually add to the emotional experience. You take away music a lot of the time in films and it's a completely different experience. You think about like uh, Castaway and the Wilson scene and everybody's like, well, you know, it's like trying to make it this heartfelt thing with the music. And but if you take that away, it's kind of just looks silly and it's, you can kind of laugh at it. Yeah, I just watched uh, the, the, the last scene of the old Star Wars trilogy where they're, where they're walking in. Yeah, I posted in. that or someone I posted. Oh, uh, without the music, it's just super awkward. Yeah. <laughs> it's just super, super awkward. That was really great. Um, so... You know, well, so, and that's yeah. that's that's an aspect of kind of adding these layers of aesthetics to it to add uh, an emo- emotional depth, um, and you know, it, together that creates something, uh, you know, an experience. Yeah. So let's talk about more concretely. You you brought up Spelunky. Spelunky is probably my favorite game of all time at this point. I have logged more hours than I will admit on record. Probably like five hundred into that game over the course of two years, maybe. Um, and Splunky has some really interesting aspects there, but one, one of the things that it does really, really well is it takes um, it takes sort of the aesthetics and the gameplay and it maps them t- together flawlessly. So if you look at a thing, it works the way that you would expect it to from a glance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while the system itself might be fairly straightforward, um, because everything you expect and sort of play out in your head, like, oh, I bet if I do this, then this, then this will happen... Um, it all works sort of intuitively. Anytime something happens, you're like, oh, that makes sense. I could have predicted that. Either that or one or two other things would have happened, all of which makes sense. Um, and that aspect of like aesthetics and, and the gameplay systems sort of mapping together flawlessly, that's really hard to do. 
And a lot of games miss out on that. You know, they have... Try to do like real time strategy games are really annoying at this. They'll do like rock, paper, scissors style. There's, you know, the rock unit, the paper unit, and the scissors unit. And oh, they happen to be an archer, a warrior, and a mage. I look at an archer and I just think, okay, that, that's the, that beats paper, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when, when you have this like good uh, mapping together, so like in Splunky, you have the freeze ray. Well, the freeze ray freezes things. And then those things fall. And if they hit the ground, they shatter. But if they hit the water, they float. Because that's what freezing means. Mm-hmm. But that's like a really un- sort of like you wouldn't um, immediately think that that's going to happen in the game. But then when you do it, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That sort of little magical experience happens over and over and over again. And some of them are coded in, like the the floating one. But then what happens if you freeze this thing and it floats and then another thing jumps into the water or all these like you start to play out more complicated scenarios and you get a couple surprising but obvious in hindsight things. And that, to me, is where, where the core of, like, emergence fits in in, in in gameplay and fun and enjoyment is this, like... Uh, so, so sci-fi has this word, sense of wonder, that sort of describes when you, when you read about a future and you're like, holy shit, that could happen, that's so cool. That, to me, is emergence. It's not just like emergence, it is emergence. Like, in sci-fi, you're playing out what are the emergent properties of the world that we're building right now. Um, and in games, and you're a new, a new possibility kind of you, you realize a new possibility kind of thing. But it's yeah, and it's not like in some books you're like, oh, this is a future world that could totally exist. I believe that. But in a, in like a good sci-fi, especially hard sci-fi, you're like, not only is this a future that might exist, there are reasons why it is more likely to exist, and learning about it will enable me to be better in the future. And that sort of like all just comes together in like the epiphany feeling. Mm-hmm. And and so like when you're given the basics rules and you don't see all of the emergent possibilities and then one happens to you and you realize like oh that does make sense given these base rules you get that epiphany feeling mm-hmm. um and that's i mean that's like crack it's really fun to have that feeling and i think that's why emergence works in games and why you see so much of it i'm trying to think so i mean so it's kind of is it is it like reverse engineering the the emergent possibility that happened it's like understanding like so, when you so explain it in the game because you've explained what it's like in, in, for sci-fi, but what, can you explain the game experience a little bit more? Yeah, it's it's like a, a little bit it's a little bit tough to explain it without having played any of these games. So, so Splunky is Mario Sandbox Edition. Um, like Derek, uh, the creator Derek, you explicitly set out to create a fun sandbox, um, and then in that sandbox, there is sort of an overarching goal. But at the end of the day, the fun is had when things interact and crazy shit happens. Um, so I'm trying to think of like some, some of the simpler examples. So there's uh, you, you play you play the first four levels and they're fairly straightforward, fairly simple. Um, and there's there's maybe a little bit fun because there's some traps and you can uh, everything in Spelunky is done very uh, simulation wise instead of gameplay wise. So so if if a trap is triggered by things in front of it and shoots an arrow, then everything in front of it will trigger it. And that means enemies can trigger it and you falling can trigger it. Um, and, and so the game very much has this like open simulation feel. Um, and so you get to the, the second world, so like level 2-1, and there are these guys with boomerangs that will throw them. Um, and when they see you, they throw but there's all kinds of ways that that can end up like poorly for them. So mm-hmm. there'll there'll be these like cauldrons that when they're hit they release a, a flame demon, 
and you can like trick the boomerang guys into hitting one of those flame demons and then they kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you know enough about the game, you can instantly see situations and predict out that whole interaction and then see that as a goal and achieve that. But before that point, you'll probably just flail yourself and then you'll have the most hilarious death ever. And in that process, you'll see some emergent behavior and sort of internalize that pattern. So I want to pause there because I think something you said was actually um, kind of helps make it very clear what emergence is in these situations. Um, you know, when you talk about like uh, like a simple rule, like in, uh, the boomerang guy throwing boomerang and what triggers that or the, uh, the, uh, the arrow shooting, you know, what triggers that, you know, you can create, uh, a, you can kind of hard code like every possibility of, um, you know, type of object that will trigger this and what happens in that situation. Um, but that's not actually how you program these games. You program it so that you say, oh, it's going to it's gonna fire uh, an arrow when anything comes in front of it. And, um, you know, this is what happens to anything when they get hit by an arrow. Um, and there might be a lot of time physics is involved. It's a big kind of seed for um, generative or uh, uh, emergent kind of dynamics like this. Um, and then... And so you, you just kind of program those and see what happens. It's like they, they didn't the programmer didn't have to like every they didn't even program every possibility. Does that make sense? Like that's the yeah totally um, yeah I would say like um, and and that's that's not usual. I would say Splunky is unusual in how uh, simulation and um, emergence heavy it is. Uh, to sort of contrast that, like Braid, um, which is Mario plus time travel, basically Braid was basically like here are the basic things. And then where are the interesting emergent behavior? Okay, John Blow mapped out roughly all of that and then turned it into a puzzle game where the puzzles force you to interact with the emergent behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's They're, very yeah, different. Yeah. They, the levels were pre-designed, very intentional. Um, it was it was more of like he was actually, as a game designer, because he talks about this a lot as sort of like the um, you know what you learn as a game player versus the game designer and how you actually learn a lot as a game designer because... His process was, um, you know, finding those interesting emergent properties, those dynamics when you have these rules. And what if you throw this into the mix, right? And you have no idea, but you throw it in. You're like, okay, this is an interesting dynamic when you associate uh, time with the direction you're going or something like that. What are the interesting things that happen? He discovers that and then will, you know, intentionally build levels to exploit that uh, type of uh, emergence. And it's very, like, the, the emergence is there. Uh, but it's more like intentional and kind of hard yeah, in the you, way it's presented. If you looked at two people playing Braid who both beat the game eventually, they'd have roughly the same emergent like sense of wonder experiences, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the same order, roughly the same time. As compared to Spelunky, where it's sort of like, here's randomness and chaos. Who knows what you're going to get this time? Who knows what you're going to get next time? And if you and I have both played for 200 hours, and we probably have a really large common shared set of experiences, but they were happening all different times... And what I find is, in isolation, if we played the game a bunch and then we talk to each other, we'll have had a lot of unique experiences. Right. And those stories are interesting, and there's a whole secondary like social level of storytelling and mythologizing and rarity and hardness leading to... Um, like One of the things that Splunky does really well is it gives you this simple system, but testing hypotheses in the system is expensive. Um, and it gets progressively more expensive the further you go in the game. Because when you die, you start over. Exactly. Yeah, so it's possible to... For example, um, getting to the mothership is quite hard. Um, you have to beat, what, I don't know, 10 levels 
sort of flawlessly. You kind of need a jetpack, which is rare. It doesn't even show up in every game. And if it does, it's hard to get. Um, and then you can use that to get this insane gun if you beat a whole bunch of even harder things um, that literally destroys the world in front of you, uh, but can also kill you. Super risky. So in a normal game, you would, you know, you'd pick that up right before the last boss fight and use it and you'd feel really cool. In Spelunky, you pick it up and you go, I should probably just put this down. Like, this is going to kill me. This is going to kill my 30, 35 minutes of investment, two hours of investment, however long it took me to get there and also however long it would take me to get back. And so it gives it this, like, this weight of testing out hypotheses with this is hard. Having this is rare. Mm-hmm. The emergent behaviors of it are going to be surprising and novel because I just don't get to have these all the time. Um, and that, that weight and that contextualization doesn't exist in a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, except like, in yeah, yeah. It exp- I think, yeah, Splunky was very much designed to exploit and play up a lot of the 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 coolness of the of emergence i mean i kind of think of like for example the gen, the uh, randomly generated procedural levels um is basically another you know an, uh, you have physics uh, physics is often a system that people will put into their game to have like realistic physics because physics is at the core like real simple rules but you get interesting behavior out of that so that's kind of a cheap thing you can throw into your game to get some emergent behavior and then you can layer that in with random levels and so you're adding more kind of interesting possibilities so you have simple rules but you're just creating more combinations of of possibilities and so you talk about the possibility space in these things so there are things like random procedural levels and um you know other kind of auxiliary systems like physics and stuff that kind of help augment it and then there's sort of the the game design stuff of of um you know having things more rare and like secrets and you know adding more value to uh basically when you when you die making it harder to experiment with that uh kind of adds more <laughs> specialness to it so it seems like Splunky was totally uh you know set up to exploit that this this special concept of of emergence or this experience that comes with it yeah it definitely it nails it really really well there's there's a, only a handful of other things that i would even put close to its level um probably faster than light ftl would would be my like runner up and FTL has a very different take on it. Um, so in FTL, you're a spaceship and you're fighting a spaceship, but um, you see this top-down view of the rooms of each spaceship, and you have a very like Star Trek level of battle where you say, okay, I'm going to set my my missiles to target their uh, shields, and I'm going to use my laser beam to cut through, like, center their deck. Um, but when the interesting part of the game comes out is that you're fighting a fairly complicated AI... And when you damage the inside of the ship, you're, you're removing its ability, and sometimes you're removing its intelligence. Um, and there's this um, concept called the what is it, Cartesian dichotomy, the idea, this, like, this historical sort of fallacy that the mind is not physical, um, where we sense, like, I see you as a body, and then you as a person, and the you as a person is this abstract thing, and then your body is a separate thing. Um, we make this mistake over and over again of, of saying that consciousness is other and outside of and above. Um, and so it's really fun whenever that breaks down. Um, like we're, we're, as a species, super fascinated with brain damage and how it affects people's thoughts and their behaviors because it seems so unreal to us that the physical 
changes in your body could have such a dramatic change on consciousness, which seems like this impenetrable, perfect internal thing. Um, and so in FTL, when you damage the other player, you're basically hurting their like brain and ability to react and ability to do things. Um, and so the strategy becomes like, which part of your brain do I cut out first so that you have to limp along and can't kill me with the rest of your brain? Um, and where brain and body are sort of also the same thing a lot of the time. So, I mean, we're starting to get to the point where we can kind of jump from games as a metaphor to talk about emergence in other contexts, other situations. Yeah, so games are really focused on positive emergence, and you were talking about negative emergences. Oh, was I? Yeah, bugs, for instance. Bugs. Oh, when you're, well, you were asking, what are, what are some examples of emergence in programming? Um, I mean, I, I don't think about it. That's just the first thing that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, a lot of the time when you're programming something and you run into a bug and it's sort of an unexpected thing, you have to go through this process of debugging, which is the majority of programming, is understanding how this uh, bug, which is uh, what I would argue to be an emergent behavior of of the system um, in that it's not entirely obvious, right? It wasn't directly what you made it do. It's maybe a couple of things working together in a weird way or something that you didn't think of interacting with the rest of the system, doing something that was not desirable. And so I think that is a form of of emergence where it's doing something you don't want. I mean, but you have that in games. Like you have like, you know, something undesirable happening you didn't expect to happen. And that's actually a positive thing to have those negative things it might add another you know some sense of challenge or whatever um but there's i mean the, there's emergence in um i don't i don't usually think about the the negatives it's usually um when you're when you're programming to me when i think about emergence it's about the design of the system um which is something that a lot of uh engineers i, I feel like don't come like when <laughs> it's funny the the uh parallels in, in game design is very much you're thinking about as a designer you're not like engineering the game so much as you're designing the game rules and understanding how those rules unfold in the dynamics and then you know complementing that with certain aesthetics and overall creating an experience and experience design was one of the early kind of fields that I latched onto but um, there's also just inter- generally like interaction design or in- game design is arguably I guess falls into the field of interactive design um, but design for me, is one of the few fields that actually thinks about emergence sort of indirectly because you're thinking about the system as a whole. And most of the time, systems are the result of, emerg- of emergence. Like, by definition, what we when we talk about systems, especially here, systems thinking, systems theory, um, it's talking about something where uh, the system is defined, its behavior, how it acts, what it does, uh, is defined by its parts interacting. And its parts interacting... Uh, might lead to something that is more than the sum of the parts. It's as opposed to those things just kind of coming together and 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 um, you know doing something that uh, it logically makes sense is the next thing. It actually does something even more. It's like you got more out of it than you put in. Um, and so there's actually different uh, levels of this. So I would argue that's kind of the key of emergence: is things interacting in a way to create something uh, newer and in- interesting. And um, so it's, you're talking about uh, how can you maximize, when I think about uh, building systems, I'm thinking about a lot of the time maximizing the possibilities, uh, especially as tools, right? I can maximize what you can do with it, the expressiveness of it, I usually describe it as, and then um, and then how do you make that you know kind of user-friendly? I was kind of talking about 
recently how I design systems. It's usually complementing like extensibility with um, user experience. Um, so, and to me, that usually comes down to building very simple primitives. And so when I talk about sim- simple primitives in, in system design, it has very much to do with this idea of um, engineering emergence and increasing the possibility space. Because you can use two, you might build a monolithic system, you know, and it has these parts, but those parts are really designed to only work to function to produce that one system. Whereas if you have reusable components, you can actually combine them to get more interesting possibilities and do different things. And sort of the canonical example are things like on Unix pipelining. You have these really simple things that you can chain, chain together and you can put them together in different orders or with different other programs and you can get all this different behavior and expressiveness out of it. Um, today, software is so complicated that you just, you know, it's so complicated, it's hard enough just to get everything working together intentionally than it is to... Um, uh, what I've been describing as de-aggregating is taking something and understanding it well enough that you can kind of decompose it into these parts that you can turn into simpler primitives. Yeah, I feel like I feel like when you looked at web development circa 2004, it was very much like pick a front end and then a database and you're good. Mm-hmm. And like the the big leap forward in the last ten years has been like pick a couple front ends, pick a couple back ends, which doesn't sound like that big of a difference. But, like, the difference between writing PHP talking to MySQL and writing Node.js talking to Redis, Solar, and Cassandra is, like, night and day. And having the ability to sort of pick and choose each component that's right for you and then getting different emergent behavior from those interconnects. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start getting, like, oh, well, it turns out you can't use Mongo for this because so-and-so. And that's kind of, like, you know, it's, it's again, emergence. It's your understanding. It's your, the limits of whatever tools that you're using. Um, and you're getting those negative effects. You're like, oh, it should handle this, but it turns out it doesn't. Um, just the complexity of it. Um, so yeah, then you see a lot of people designing out emergence. They don't want emergence at all. They want they want uh, a part that's interchangeable, or they want um, regularity, like very Taylorist sort of ideals. Um, I see that a lot more at the human level. Uh, if you have sort of like emergent patterns coming out while you're building large software where you're like, well, we planned this and we built these simple pieces, but then when we fit together, it turns out they have these problems or they have these unexpected benefits. Um, very few organizations are then like, okay, let's capitalize on that right away. Um, instead, they're like, well, we made this plan. It says we're doing this for six months. I know you found these two things that are cool and these two things that are bad, but we're going to just keep executing the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so emergence, I feel like a, a lot of like, oh, we're six months off of our ship target is like, well, we built the simple things and then found out that there's an emergent problem that's way harder. And that's just sort of like one of the fundamental realities of being systems designers as programmers. You are, if you program, you are a systems designer. Um, but then treating it as if it were uh, an assembly line task. Right. Which is why, you know, the rise of agile development and, like, customer discovery and these more iterative um, things that... That allow for emergence. That allow for... Basically, you know, the idea of you're you're exploring more than you're doing and you kind of have to just (laughs) deal with that. Yeah, it's one of my one of my favorite things with Lean Startup is it's like if you think that this is boring, you're doing it wrong. If you're not being surprised on a regular basis, you are blinded to the avenues of surprise. Which is, which comes to, to to learning, right? I mean, that's the whole. 
it's sort of the whole point of those iterations is that each iteration you're learning something. And I think I forget where it come up, but where it came up. But I think uh, people people are not, and this comes back to games. Actually, is is uh, if you're not learning, you get bored, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why games are interesting uh, is because you're able to learn and get better, you know, and learn more about the system and, and you know that sort of mastery of it. And if you're not learning when you're as an engineer, I think you know engineers love puzzles and stuff like that. But if you're not learning, um, you know, you're you're actually you're going to get bored, <laughs> which is probably why you know, a lot of engineers don't like the whole sort of nine to five doing you know classical programming because more or less like you've kind of solved uh, or at least like eliminated the uh, the surprises a lot of the time, right? Um, you're still running into bugs, but you know it's like oh well, yeah, it's a dumb bug. I'll just go fix that. Yeah, like when I do a hobbyist project, I'm sitting there going, I'm just going to start from scratch and then do something simple and then see what it works and then and then sort of build from there. Whereas I'm starting a commercial project, it's like okay, plan it out, make sure there's no surprises, blah blah blah. And it's it's very I would say worse, um, which is why in general when I do planning, I try to just do really large flex bucket buckets and say, hey, look, like we're going to reevaluate this on a very regular basis to allow for interesting things to come up and to allow for capitalizing on them. Uh, so, yeah, in systems thinking, a lot of the work um, kind of was developed around uh, management science type of stuff, organization theory. Um, and so, like, for example, the this, this whole idea of planning, um, Akoff wrote about like interactive planning. It's you know very much like an agile kind of modeling the system in an appropriate way um, to sort of take to deal with the fact that you 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 don't know everything that's going to happen. You kind of have to apply, uh, understand that systems are dynamic, emergent things, and kind of work in that that paradigm. Um, so it seems like all the interesting. Uh, all the interesting ideas and stuff are based on taking advantage or or um, uh, working into your model this idea of emergence. Um, so that's why it's kind of such a fascinating thing. And like I said, it's a really kind of the, the, a core concept of any system. Yeah, and then we don't we don't see I don't see the word emergence pop up in software design too much, but you do see it in uh, automata which is sort of like a, a narrow field of computer science, and then also game of life, which sort of ties together games and computers and computer science. Like, you can simulate a computer in the game of life, therefore it is these properties, um, even though, like, the rules to it are so, so simplistic. Yeah. Um, and then... That's we, sort of... Usually, that is actually the game of, the game of life uh, is sort of like another canonical example of of emergence or or like uh complexity from simplicity yeah um you're definitely one of the canonical ones uh there's only four like basically if you've if you've never seen a cellular automata it's basically you're looking at a grid um of cells uh and a cell can have multiple states and in the simple case it's either on or off and you basically can say, uh, as, as a simulation, that you're going to have every step, you're going to execute some rules. And so the game of life is one in which you have this setup where you have this grid, things can be on or off, and then you have four rules, really simple rules, um, like Go. So Go is the other canonical one, but simple rules. 
Um, Game of Life says any cell with fewer than two live neighbors will die. So if you don't, if if there's a cell and you just look, do you have neighbors uh, less than two? Then you die. You turn off. Um, any any cell with uh, two or three live neighbors will turn on, or you know, be active or whatever you want to call it. It's usually black and white, like black is on. Um, any cell with more than uh, three neighbors. <laughs> actually, I didn't know that. Any any cell with more than uh, three actually dies. Um, from overcrowding. I forgot about that rule. Um, and any dead cell with exactly three live neighbors becomes a live cell um, as if by reproduction. So there's there's four uh, rules based on you know what your neighbors. And so basically goes the simulation just goes through each cell and checks the neighbors and then decides whether the next uh, iterations can be on or off. And you're like, okay, well that's you know I can kind of imagine that maybe. And you know if you were to play with it, you might draw some cells turn them on and hit the hit the button and it'll like simulate and like maybe they'll all turn off or whatever yeah you get what looks like noise usually yeah but um it turns out that there's like this sort of this um interesting um i I don't i I don't know what you call it but i've heard this metaphor in different things but there's this interesting range um or types of um patterns that you can make that just exhibit extremely interesting uh, behavior. So um, they've cataloged a lot of these patterns of basically this is a simple pattern you can make and this is what happens uh, when this pattern runs. So the most um, interesting one is called the glider, which is sort of symbolic of, of Game of Life and Emergence and a lot of things. But the glider pattern is like a simple, let's see, one, two, three, four, five cell pattern and it's basically set up in a way that it, by following those rules, it sort of rotates across cells. It sort of makes it this thing that kind of moves across the, the cells. So you've now created this thing that has the ability to, to move, a pattern that moves, instead of just kind of like goes on and off and then eventually disappears. And then you have other patterns like that you, that you can make, and they can start interacting, like what happens when two gliders run into each other. Um, and then you have uh, patterns that can actually produce those glider patterns. And so you start getting all these interesting behaviors that you can kind of hook together in interesting ways, and that's where you get people making um, you right. know, and then you other, other kind of computation gates and stuff like that. And or you have processors. Um, p- people have actually just saw recently someone implemented the game of life in the game of life. Yes. So they actually had a bunch of these things working together that would actually produce these larger cells that would go across like um, you yeah, know, 100 even by a display, 100. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it, it basically producing a, a big display that's then Ridiculous. doing the game of life rules. Um, and but then even the game of life isn't the simplest version of this. Like so, there's the Stephen Wolfram book, A New Kind of Science, in which he, I mean, he spent a really really long time trying to find an even simpler one, and he found one that was like it's it's a one D grid of cells um, evolving over time, and the rules are like based on your cell and your two neighbors, what is your result, and. He just simulated all possible combinations of those rule sets of, of black and white colored cells and based on you and your two neighbors. Uh, and he found one that he simulated out and saw all kinds of complexity and chaos in the simulations and started to see the beginnings of, you know, the sort of analog of a glider. You know, you start to see patterns that repeat and you start to see like two patterns interact in predictable ways. Um, and then I don't think he proved it, but someone else proved it um, slightly later that in fact you can t- 
take anything Turing computable and map it into a starting set of cells um, and simulate it for a long enough time and then look at the cells and, and decode that into the answer. And so it is actually a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the crazy thing is that you can get these rules sort of naturally occurring out of just randomness. Um, like the randomness will self-assemble into simple patterns and with enough randomness and enough simple patterns, the simple patterns assemble into something that generates this sort of emergence. And it sort of brings up the question is like, is randomness the fundamental basic tenet of the universe and is computation a like necessary side effect of a large enough body of randomness? Right. I mean, that was kind of one of the interesting things about... He had a couple of interesting... Uh, uh, assertions, one of which is just how significant computation is in terms of the universe. Like, is the universe, you know, just a computer? Um, uh, is that why that any, you know, why Turing completeness is a thing? Um, so he kind of argues that this is a kind of an interesting way to kind of explore science and explore the principles of the natural world is. You know, he's taking a, a simple model of this, you know, one-dimensional. You know, he's kind of constraining the the amount of work, right? And he 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 basically wrote programs to try every possible program, you know, in this in that framework of those to and to, to find and document interesting behavior. And he came across with a a, a bunch of interesting things. Um, uh, one of which was um, uh, computational irreducibility. So this this was this idea of if you run so you have these simple uh, this kind of relates to to chaos which a lot of these things are sort of um, related you have the simple program and you're like okay it's it's uh, acting in a in a very uh, expected way you know you you run it a, a whole bunch of iterations and you kind of keeps producing the same pattern but then after it's run you know uh, you know maybe like three thousand iterations or something it does something different. Um, and there's a couple sides to this. One was intrinsic randomness generation. Um, the other one was this idea of computational irreducibility that you can't actually, uh, you know, one way to model things is through mathematics, right? You, you come up with a, a way where you can, you have this sort of linear relation between elements in, in a, uh, in a, uh, uh, formula, right? Mathematics. The formula is just defining relations. You know, when this changes, this other value is going to change. You know, this constant. You know, you can kind of model systems in that in that way with mathematics. Uh, and, and in a way, it's sort of this linear system because it's all you know pretty predictable. You know, it's not like uh, in some cases you have complex systems where you actually have to change the formula a little bit when you get to a certain point because of these other things in the system it's all an abstraction so it's sort of an approximation anyway but the point is that you you find a behavior in a cellular cellular automata through computation over cycles that you can't model you can't describe by formula the only way to uh see that behavior is to run the cycles before it which is really interesting you can't uh, reduce it into a simpler abstraction like a mathematical formula. You actually have to run a simulation. Again, an argument for you know that computation is sort of a fundamental uh, underpinning of the universe. Yeah, like sort of how we we're at a certain level of understanding of differential equations, but for the most part, you have to simulate them. We yeah. don't know symbolic ways. We don't know abstract ways of actually simplifying them at all, and you have to simulate. Um, and in the same way, I think. 
I think that uh, fundamentally emergent things are going to be exactly the same way. Like when you talk about building sandbox games or even when you talk about things as abstract as consciousness and the brain, a lot of what it is is really simple rules applied in really large numbers. And if it were reducible, there wouldn't be those rules in large numbers. You know, it would, it would just be the simpler system. It would have been reduced by now. Right. To describe it, there's um, soft emergence and and hard emergence. Uh, Soft emergence is usually a matter of like you just don't understand the system and you can kind of, uh, you know, over time get a better uh, intuition for it and kind of reduce it into these parts. And you're like, okay, that actually makes sense. And then there's sort of hard emergence where it's like, which is more or less the idea of computational irreducibility. You can't actually... uh, I isolate it down to an understanding of how the parts interact. It's actually there's this weird thing. That's actually why it's so interesting to me is that there's this sort of mystery to it. Um, there's some fundamental thing about things interacting over time, dynamics of, of systems. Um, yeah, and sort of the, the base underpinnings of life, I think mean, protein folding and DNA replication and epigenetics, just like giant swaths of how we as humanity came to exist are exactly that mm-hmm. um and it's one of the more interesting things about society as well is that like society itself is more complex than anything society will ever be able to simulate by definition as soon as we can simulate society society's gotten a lot more complicated mm-hmm. um it sort of points to like there's a computational irreducibility problem there that means that we will never have a perfect society we will never hit utopia um, simply because as soon as we figure it out, we'll have also figured out problems with it and we won't understand the new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so clearly emergence plays a role everywhere. Um, it's sort of... You were talking about games, it's why I like games. It's because it's kind of playing with emergence and it's why I like design because it's a lot of it's kind of engineering emergence or playing with those ideas of... Uh, systems and, and things working together to produce interesting uh, behaviors. Um, and then you have like a new kind of science and, and stuff like that, cellular automata and understanding complex systems. And there's actually a whole uh, range of uh, s- sort of field studying systems. The Kurzweil book, I feel like the Kurzweil book is the new kind of science, but for the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a book, uh, I can probably look up the name of it after, but it's it's very much like here is the fundamental, simplest, abstract pattern in the brain. Not how do neurons fire, but like at its, at its simplest abstract definition, the brain is just a bunch of pattern recognizers that can sort of trigger each other and lower each other's threshold for triggering and a couple other simple sort of methods of communication and based on that really simple description and then just a ton of them you get consciousness Mm -hmm. and that to me is sort of like the most interesting and most important emergence right but definitely a sort of hard strong emergence is like we can't figure it out why because you know, arguably, a lot of people, well, or we can figure it out. Maybe, maybe, maybe we, we want can, it. Yeah. Maybe we want consciousness to be a thing when, in fact, it's just an emergent property of the simpler systems. Right. And it's hard to say that's not actually a thing. It's just, it's just a consequence. It's just a side effect. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's why I kind of, you know, you look at people. They're like, oh, I'm really ex- interested in in the mind, the brain. Um, 
that kind of comes the mind brain dichotomy they usually mean very different things the brain is sort of rooted in the actual like the neurology and then the mind is more of like the emergence it's kind of to me that's how i think about it is there's sort of the emergent properties of the the brain and that's where when you talk about the mind it's usually my model of it so it's interesting that you know when people want to understand how the mind works or you know the, all the interesting things of intelligence and consciousness, and they go into um, you know neurology. You know that's an interesting. Um, I I kind of get it, but it's sort of by definition actually constraining you to only understanding the parts. You know, mm-hmm. um, and you know unless you go into it with a sort of like kind of systems thinking or almost philosophical kind of way of thinking about it, um, would you even yield? Like you definitely find interesting things in, in neurology, but. Um, to, to understand those kind of more emergent properties, like you're not, it's, it doesn't seem very likely that you're going to find answers. Yeah, Kurzweil had this analogy to Einstein. Einstein was like one of the progenitors of, of sort of theoretical physicists. So Einstein didn't do experimentation. He sat around thinking and he read experiments and he used those to inform his worldview. And what's crazy is that his fundamental observation, the science that that supported it had existed for like 20 or 30 years at that point. Like we had disproven um, the idea that, that the, uh, the idea that the speed of light was not a constant. We had empirical evidence that the speed of light was a constant, but because that idea was so anathema to all of the theories at the time, it was just sort of rejected as like, Oh, and there's this weird thing we don't understand. Um, And Kurzweil's point is like, we have so much information about the brain. Um, but we don't sort of have this like unifying theory of how it works at an abstract level because most people with theories of the brain then immediately go out and sort of test them. Mm-hmm. Um, and his point was like if we build out an abstract level somewhere in between high level consciousness and like what you would think of as like Freudian level psychology mm-hmm. um, and then like the low level of what's your nerve doing or what's your what's your you know what are the electrons doing in your nerves crazy low level stuff like that there's a middle tier of pattern recognizer or whatever that whatever that uh, atom is in that system that you could think about and make hypotheses about and then eventually those would be testable maybe right. not testable today that's actually uh, when i was talking about that that game i was trying to like um i had some interesting lofty goals of trying to like uh re uh reproduce like the emergence of language and stuff like that it was actually kind of that idea of taking trying to model systems at that middle ground of taking like some low-level kind of uh you know, principles and taking some higher level principles and trying modeling a system. Maybe it's not reality, but modeling a system that actually makes them align in a way where you actually get the emergent behavior. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But um, this this kind of comes to uh, th- this uh, this idea of you know systems as a science is something that isn't really um, the the way people think about systems is the, the, the way we've kind of come to understand systems is not one that actually uh, encourages understanding of systems. Um, and I'm talking about like the machine age thinking and, and systems age thinking that Akhoff was talking about, which, you know, a lot of people today are like, well, yeah, of course, and you, that you kind of think in terms of understanding what the context of systems and the environment and, and all this kind of stuff. But um, most of our sort of uh, classical understanding of the universe is based on the this idea of things like you know 
um, removing the environment and studying studying things in isolation and looking for you know the core elements you know breaking things down into their parts and that's where you get the search for the elements you know the whole like you know finding chemical elements or you know finding smaller and smaller physical things atom quarks whatever um, and that is seen that's sort of the uh, seems to fall out of the just analytical nature of um, that sort of uh, worldview, you know, people think, oh, you're an engineer, science, whatever. You, you're going to be analytical. By nature, what you're going to do is you're going to look at something and take it apart and understand the parts to understand the whole. But it seems like uh, very often you get a you train your mind to really focus on the parts more than the whole when you go down that that path, which is why Akoff was kind of trying to push this idea of, of um, systems thinking, which is taking that sort of analytical underpinning of understanding the parts, breaking things down, and combining it with this completely opposite way of thinking of uh, understanding the system, and maybe even as an opaque system, uh, what is its relationship to its environment? And then what is the relationship, you know, in that environment? Because everything is going to influence each other in both directions. Yeah, there's this great... um there's this great example of that where the human fallacy of assigning um, behavior to an entity instead of behavior to an interaction, mm-hmm. um, where if uh, if you like are hammering something and you stub your thumb, you're going to blame the environment. You're going to blame the tools. You're going to say like, okay, I didn't have the right training or I screwed up because X. But you're never going to say, I hit myself with the hammer because I suck at hammer. However, if you see someone hit themselves with a hammer, or even better yet, if you sit here, hit yourself with a hammer and you get angry, you ascribe the anger to the circumstance. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you see someone else who's hit themselves with the, the hammer and they're angry, you describe them as an angry person. You ascribe the anger to the individual and you consider it a character trait. Um, and that fallacy happens over and over and over again where short-term behaviors in other people or even long-term behaviors you ascribe to the individual if it's someone else, and to the context, if it's yourself. And the science shows that it's the context. Like, if you take that person out of the stressful situation they're in and put them into a non-stressful situation, odds are they're going to be way less angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that come up over and over again in software where people talk about, like, uh, there's a post on Hacker News, I forget exactly what it was about, but it had this great example where it was, like, a guy at a conference who was, like, you know, the A's hire B's, who hire C's, and then you have yeah. shit employees thing. Um who here believes that? Most people raise their hands. Who here thinks they're not an A? No one raises their hand. Like, everyone ascribes... Like, if I'm not an A-level player, it's my circumstance. If you're not an A-level player, it's because you suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's fundamental. I think that it, given equal opportunity and good context, um, anyone can be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I when I look at dysfunctional... Here, here's a great example. I, I worked with a team. I'm obviously not going to name them. Uh, they had all the right people in all the wrong places. Um, you know, like, concrete example, they were doing Scrum. They had a Scrum master. It was a high-level employee. They had a person on the team who had Scrum-certified training, who had been doing Scrum for years and years, and he wasn't doing that job. And just rotating those two people's positions made a meeting that was contentious and angry and people are complaining that like, oh, so-and-so is never doing their work and -and so-and-so is just angry all the time. It just turned out to be communication and people in the wrong slots. In the wrong world. And and seeing that change 
And then seeing the team six months later, it's like, oh, night and day. But it was context. Whereas in another, another uh, environment, people could have been fired to try and fix that problem. Yeah. Um, Some it, people... It's crazy. I mean, that's a, it, to me, that's all sort of a fundamental concept of you know, understanding your role, which is understanding the environment and stuff like that. And I think people have somewhat of an idea when, of that when they talk about like culture, um, which usually is more of like uh, they don't really... At the end of the day, it's like you know, culture fit, but it's also... Basically, I'm trying to say that it's the same thing as culture fit. You know, it's like uh, maybe you're maybe you're uh, underperforming, you know, in this role for this company, but it's because of the role that you're in and and the culture. You know, you just don't jive with the rest of the team. Whereas you find you move to another place and you're like a completely different, uh, you know, person who's you know overperforming or whatever, right? Because you found the right people and you found someone to compliment you or whatever. Um, so a lot of the time, finding the right role makes a big difference. Um, but understanding that, like no, like you're saying, everybody kind of just understands, like, is this person talented and how talented are they? And very a little do they think about, you know, the exact, like... Yeah, role, I, I, I want to get back to culture fit, but I have, I have a ton of examples of that where it's like, if you introduce someone as awesome and you tell a story about how they're awesome, people will internalize, this person is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they're not doing awesome... You're like, wait, but that person's awesome, so the context must be wrong. The system must be wrong. The company must be like forcing that person to be not awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, InView had this great culture of new hires. Within a month or so, there'd be some story about them, some heroic story. Uh, and I don't know how that came out. I, I don't know why that specific thing happened. But I could tell you the story for each of like the first 20, 25 people. And because of those stories the engineering group just was like okay we're awesome so anything ever that's going wrong is a systems problem that we can solve by building a better system Mm -hmm. not a personnel problem that needs to be solved by firing bad people or bad actors um and then that extended to our tools anytime that something goes wrong it's our tools fault they were our first line of defense then it's also like our processes fault our human level things etc and so blame very, 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 very rarely fell onto people. It only really fell onto people when it was like, okay, this is a rule. You've been taught it. You've made multiple mistakes in a row. This is egregious. Um, and so, I mean, it was, I think I'd been there a couple of years before I even saw someone fired. It was just like a really, really, really good culture for then experimenting. Would you, would you actually say that um, if you actually incorporated that into the onboarding process, let's say you, you find somebody, you interview them, you know, they turn out to be awesome, uh, and they have these stories. If you actually propagated those stories to uh, the rest of the team so that by the time you have, you know, whatever, 10 people, that everybody knows the, these great stories about everybody else, that, that will actually encourage that psychology of actually thinking um, that, well, no, it's actually, it has to be the system. It's not that individual. Yeah, I mean, everyone who works here is awesome is a fundamental cultural point at most good companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, you, so you join a company and you have random people come on, you don't know anything about them or whatever. It's kind of like, and then they do something that isn't right, and you're like, mm, maybe it's because they're not that great. Yeah, and programmers are notoriously bad at selling themselves, mm-hmm. um, which is why like, at MVU it wasn't you told the story. It was other people told the story about you, and that was very important because like, you wouldn't necessarily believe it 
from someone like mm-hmm. oh i'm awesome because i did x right but when you hear like somebody else talking about him on you know on his first week he saved the cluster mm-hmm. on his first week he made our thing way more performant like all these crazy stories you're like oh this is a this is a team full of awesome people and honestly those stories happened yes the people that we hired were great and i love working with them but honestly i think if another company had hired them that was shitty they'd probably be shitty now that's the even worse part is that iterate this out five or ten years and these people now all believe that they're awesome and therefore you know have an even higher chance of going on to do awesome was there something about culture fit that you wanted to get oh yeah okay so culture fit is a really really problematic term now um for for a couple reasons one of them is that just culture fit is not a good enough metric because culture fit can easily be a synonym for any of my innate biases. So, so when, I, when I look at a person and I have an intuitive reaction, I'm sensing a wide variety of things, some of which are very useful. Intuition is super useful. Some of which are very shitty. Intuition has all kinds of really, really well-documented cognitive biases. And so you'll see culture fit being used to rationalize. We don't hire people who don't drink. We don't hire people who aren't good at ping pong. We only hire Halo players, etc. And then you get homogeny, and homogeny is really, really bad for you. Um, InView is surprisingly non-homogenous in, in its makeup in terms of uh, programming background. We had lots of self-taught people who had learned in very different ways. It wasn't all college background, etc. It definitely was still pretty, you know, Bay Area, uh, what, white, Asian, Indian, um, and male, and you know, 20 to 35-ish. So it, I, I would still very homogenous um, in, in a lot of bad ways. And culture fit was a problem for that. It was hard to get people over this culture fit barrier because culture fit is used as this broad spectrum thing, um, which is why I think you need something different. Uh, namely that, like, I don't think that the... I don't think that you can take an interview. An interview is take you out of the context you're going to work in put you in literally a box, have people come into this arbitrary box, test you, poke and prod you, and analytically figure out, like, you know, can can you perform task X? And then what do we actually want you to do? Well, we want you to sit in a room with a bunch of other people and interact with them positively mm-hmm. and right. do this really social thing. Right. Um, so my best interviewing experiences as a candidate have all been sit down and pair with someone on a real project. Um, and, like, Wealthfront... That's the process. You ship real code live to the website in the like in the interview process. They haven't even hired you yet. Um, so I don't, I don't think we've got it yet. I think our interviewing process is super broken. And I think interviewing for culture fit is bad. Um, but the insight that like there is a systems level effect. You want to interview someone not for themselves, but for the interactions and how they do fit within the team. Right. That's super important. I don't think we figured that out. It's sort of an, an example of like... Uh, you know, people not understanding what culture is and then, you know, wrongly applying that model, right? Oh, we're going to test you for culture fit, but you're not actually testing for culture fit at all, right? Right. So so Walmart, I have a great example of that. Walmart has the culture of they don't care about service. They care about like price. Like price is the most important thing to Walmart because price is the most important thing to overall their customers. Um, and so there was uh, there was a person who had a really bad, really negative customer service experience with Walmart, and they called Walmart and uh, what did they do? They wrote this giant complaint, and then a manager called like the owner of Walmart at the time, 
And you know, Walmart picks up the phone. Literally, like like a manager at a store called the owner of Walmart. And the manager said, like, look, we have these customer service problems. People are complaining. We need to do something about it. That is, this is where you have your, your culture being set. If you want a culture of lowest price over all other things, then the CEO, when they get the call that service is a problem, should we sacrifice price for it? The CEO needs to say, yes, we're going to sacrifice service for price. That is a hard decision. As soon as you sort of give up that, that like defining aspect of your company, um, you lose it. So uh, to give another example, Facebook. Facebook is like move fast and break shit. And what that means is they'd rather that you get things done even if it costs some mistakes. They'd rather that you learn or that you build or that you ship than you have things break. So when you have like, we did this experiment, it was on people, it was about emotions, we talked about it and we moved on and then suddenly it's a huge PR disaster. Now what does Facebook do? What is their next step? Is their next step to clamp down on that? In which case, they will have lost it. They might not take that one sentence thing out of their culture document or out of their credo or whatever it is in, but it's gone. You know, as soon as you start to see, oh, if you move fast and break things, there are negative repercussions, you lose it. Now, maybe it'll be completely gone in 10 years for the actions you do today, but like culture is at the end of the day, stating your values and then really sticking to them when it hurts. Uh, I don't think people get that. It's not ping pong. It's not beer. It's not what bar do we go to. Right. That's well, all so, surface. So um, there's uh, – because, again, when I'm thinking about systems and, and thinking about context and, and roles because really a lot of the time when you're saying uh, – to me, when I think about that uh, kind of systems or, or the opposite of kind of analytical thinking, it's about understanding roles and how roles relate as opposed to the things that are – it's almost like function versus implementation, right? It's like studying the function of something and how that relates with other functions, uh, you know, functionally as in what it's doing, purpose, um, uh, and separating that from implementation detail. So, right, it's like a person who this is your role in the company, uh, and you know, it doesn't matter what you're, you know, as capable of doing as long as you can serve that function, or how good you are, because how good you are is going to be. You know, depend on both what role you're playing and the other people involved. Um, there's actually uh, kind of a, an interesting. Did, did you ever see the the? Uh, it's like what's it called? Belbin team inventory or like it's no, a? It's kind that. of like a. It, it, it's um, it's sort of like a personality type test, like a Myers Briggs mm-hmm. thing, but it's it's focusing on uh, roles in our organization. And so it was kind of one of these things where it's saying like successful teams usually have, you know, people playing these roles in a very generalized sense. And so it like is basically like a personality test to identify what role you're best in. And they're sort of, they're not necessarily, it's something that you can apply no matter what you do. So for example, I think I was identified as a plant um, in some of these names. They're names like resource investigator, coordinator, shaper, monitor, evaluator, team worker. Um, But, uh, you know, People are like, oh, yeah, plant. So plants are creative, unorthodox, and generators of ideas, right? And so a plant needs to be treated in a certain way. It doesn't matter, like, you know, what they're doing or whatever. But if a person it tends towards 
um, playing uh, to their strengths in a certain role, they should be put in that role. If you're put in a different role, they're not going to be playing to their strengths, and they're going to, you know, you're kind of setting it up to fail. So good organizations are usually the ones that are going to try and see that that you're not, you know, playing, you're not in the right place, you're not in the right role. Which is like what you're talking about with the scrum master and stuff. And just kind of yep. little changes can completely change the dynamics of a system. Um, and traditionally, analog- analytical thinking just kind of Mm, depending on your context or, or whatever, you might not, you know, come to those kinds of conclusions. Um, it's kind of because you have to kind of stand back and understand the system and how it works. Yeah, roles are an interesting one because um, a lot of the time that I see roles being assigned explicitly, I see this sort of like analytical approach of we need one of each of these five roles to get anything done. You're this. You're this. You're this. You're this. Perform mm-hmm. your function. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I what uh, what I often preach to the companies I consult with is like no 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 get rid of all the roles get rid of all the titles and let people self organize because most likely ninety percent of all the people will self organize into the roles the they're roles good that at. they're good at yeah. and if not they'll notice that the roles they're good at are in overabundance mm-hmm. and they need to be something else and people are pretty good at that yeah adapting um, and then and then you do this really like sort of light touch approach to like okay right now our weakest link is you know this interaction pattern or this person is in a bad role or something and then you make like one small change and then you let everything sort of like readjust and re-optimize um and so, like, another thing I see is I cannot give you the knowledge to do continuous deployment. However, what I can do is I can give you the base conditions, and I can give you the iteration pattern, and then I can tell you that, you know, after seven one-week or two-week scrum sprints, you will be at continuous deployment. You will have gotten there, and you will have learned all the problems, and I cannot make that go faster. Mm-hmm. I cannot simulate this loop any faster than actually running through that loop. Um, so it's, it's sort of interesting how I find the best method is often just this like chaos soup approach of guys go do it. Okay, what's going slightly wrong? Let's analyze this. Let's let's be self-aware as a team. Mm-hmm. And that that's it. That's all you really need. Computational irreducibility at work. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, maybe I just need a really programmery way of saying it and then people will understand it and, and get into it because I definitely... Oh, man. Programming is a really quick way to interact with people who are actually computers. Uh, man, there's some other stuff, but maybe we should... Yeah, no, I think we're like an hour and a half. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the most interesting thing about emergence is that I think the, the our growing understanding is showing, and obviously if science disproves this, whatever, but it seems that Emergence is one of the absolutely fundamental principles of the universe and possibly why we're here. And the, the understanding of emergence is the understanding of humanity and society and the, the greater picture. And the few places that really study that are system sciences. Yeah, there's, there's very little like sort of holistic emergence studying. Um, and, and, and that, that's what makes games so like uh, aesthetically interesting is that it is a place to study emergence, but in a confined box that, that works. And, and so I think that's why we keep coming back to them as, as uh, examples. 
you know, I, I keep wanting to work on them. One of the interesting things about emergence is, I don't know if this is like academically the right way to think about it, but just taking things that seem like strong emergence and then going to weak emergence um, or soft emergence, you know, to the point where you can understand the parts and how they interact. And, um, you know, obviously it's it's more ideal if you do understand the parts because then you have more sort of mastery of the system and working with those parts. Um, there's a really interesting talk that was uh, by Chris Hecker, who was talking about uh, artificial intelligence, of all things, you know, because he's kind of talking about like, oh, um, what, uh, do you remember this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. I haven't seen all okay, the talks. Okay, so, um, so much good stuff. He, he was talking about um, basically understanding how to break down a system, like how to decompose a system properly. Um, and his his sort of uh, example for this uh, applied well was three um, D programming graphics uh, and games. So, so he kind of argued that the um, oh, was, oh yeah it was like two things structure and uh, structure and aesthetic or structure and form or something like that. Um, and being able to break something down into these these two things. If you can do this, you have a really powerful uh, model for a lot of complex things. One of them was, um, he said, the biggest innovation in games was understanding um, the uh, the texture. It was um, coming up with the textured mapped uh, triangle because the, the triangle was it gave you um, structure that you could program around and that you could actually um, uh, reason about and you could build. You know, so many different kinds of geometries from the simple structure. And then if you apply a texture map to it, then it gives it a certain aesthetic that now transforms it into something completely different. And that's sort of, it's sort of like this, uh, you know, one is very objective and very sort of, uh, you know, structural, very great for sort of analytical processes. And the other one is this sort of like thing that you can just put on it. Uh, and it and it adds emotion, it adds adds. Uh, depth and, and meaning and, and all this stuff, and that's what uh, you know allowed games to us to make games. You know, you can have you know three D world and all this stuff, and you map just throwing texture maps on that on the structures, and, and you're making a, now you have a virtual place. You know, it has an, it feels like a place or a certain kind of place and all this stuff. So his argument was that we haven't found that uh, decomposition for AI, um, which to me kind of it comes it's it's a Again, if you think about it, it's yeah, a pairing of like for sure. It's it, yeah. It's like there's the, applying that texture map is sort of the uh, the same idea of in MDA the aesthetics that you add to a game that gives it some emotional depth, right? Yeah, I mean, from what I've been reading of like Wolfram and where Alpha is going, and then give me this awesome blog post about Mathematica targeting proofs and proof writing and the fundamental tenets of math itself, um, I feel like he's headed in that direction. He's headed in the direction of finding a fundamental composable primitive mm-hmm. uh, for, if not AI, then for knowledge, which seems like maybe a precursor. Mm-hmm. Um, because AI is sort of transforms on knowledge uh, and pattern recognition over knowledge and things like that. Um, that's super, super interesting to me. Um, and his his sort of end goal is like, uh, augmenting intelligence set of AI, which is probably like the near-term achievable version of the ultimate goal, which is like AI that will prove interesting things from scratch and will 
advance the field of science, at which point singularity, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a super, super interesting direction. Uh, and alpha is sort of that way. Like you, you can type in lots of random knowledge stuff and it can connect those two pieces via these little primitive concepts. Like maybe a type system is an important fundamental primitive of this. Yeah, he's also a great example. The way he thinks about systems and designing is very much like that whole like kind of understanding a domain and breaking it, deaggregating it, and then understanding like the components and making rich, simple yeah. components. And so you talk about texture map triangles as if they're this like really really simple thing, um, and the math for doing just the basic texture map triangles not structure so versus style, structure versus it? style. But but at the end of the day, like the modern. Texture map trial has, you know, anisotropic filtering and MIP map pyramids and all these like crazy advanced things to solve fairly fundamental problems with the texture map triangle. But once they get solved at that basic pattern level, you just hit a button and you it happens and that problem that was once a huge problem is gone. Mm-hmm. So and that's, I, that's the goal is having that primitive that when you improve the primitive, you improve everything based on it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we should just, we should stop. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in. Um, we're, I'm Timothy Fitz and Jeff is program on Twitter. Uh, if you go to mixler.com slash systems live, sign up, uh, subscribe to us, then you'll get emails when we go live. Um, maybe we're going to switch to Sundays. Let us know if this uh, if Sunday at 2 p.m. is a better time slot for the, for the listeners. Uh, and thanks for, thanks for tuning in to episode 49.